Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. Again, this is Hewitt Tomlin. I am the co-founder of Team Builder and your host of this podcast. Team Builder, as you know, is the number one strength and conditioning tool out there for coaches. If you haven't checked out our latest feature, it's called Online Payments Portal. To put this really, really simply, uh, we allow you to build your programs on Team Builder and set them for sale. And uh, we give you a link to share to the world once people sign up and pay. You get the money and they get to train on your programming on our app. This week's guest is going to be Erica Suter. Erica is a great strength coach uh, who works in the private sector, primarily in the youth space. She has a large background in soccer. Eric and I, we went to the same college together. We are the same age. We both graduated Johns Hopkins 2012. She was a prolific soccer player there. Um, But we don't get too much into soccer here because Erica trains a lot of sports and is mostly interested in training humans as opposed to training in specific sports or athletic programs. Uh, Erica brings some great perspective on how her perspective on coaching has kind of changed over the years, including uh, a a point that she describes as rock bottom in 2018. We talk a little bit about that. Uh, Erica is with a facility called uh, J Dyer Strength and Conditioning. Uh, she also has her own website and her own podcast. If you go to ericasuter.com, you can read her articles. She writes quite a bit, puts out a bit of content. And her podcast is, I think, eight episodes in right now. And she does a lot of solo casting, meaning she just gets on a podcast and kind of speaks on her own. Um, I never even thought about doing that. My assumption is that no one wants to hear Hewitt talk for an hour about whatever is on his mind. Um, But I was kind of interested in the idea. If you feel like you want to uh, get a solo cast in there from the big man, uh, let me know because I'm not going to do it unprompted. Uh, Maybe one person says, hey, I don't think it's a terrible idea. I don't know. Maybe I'll think about it. Anyway, enjoy this week's episode. Let me know your thoughts. Hey, Erica, how's it going? Good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, it's our our second or third time doing this, I think, maybe more. Yeah, yeah. So we just talked about this prior to recording, but a couple of years ago, we did a few podcasts together um, as we were collaborating on a project called LifeStrong, which, you know, the idea was to create training programs for former collegiate athletes. Do you remember that? Yeah, it seems like eons ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a while ago. And you know, this is one of those things that it was an idea that we actually put a lot of effort into um, to try to you know give former college athletes some resources. But I think what we found out with that is that former collegiate athletes are more likely to try to source workouts from their strength coach that they had a relationship with and not just, you know, anyone out there. Um, I don't know what your experience is like with that. If you've trained any any ex college athletes that are just looking to stay fit or stay strong or. Yeah, it's um, you nailed it. They usually stay with the the strength coach they've had for many years, or by that point, they're autonomous enough that they can write their own programs. So with a lot of like the athletes that are in college now, or that are out of college, these girls can comfortably write out their sets and reps and their progressions. And, you know, they'll text me if they need, you know, some new ideas, but overall they've put in all the work all those years and learned at such a young age and instilled the habits. And now they're just crushing it on their own, which is the the best place I can get to as, as a coach. <laughs> That's obviously a good skill for former collegiate athletes to learn because 
we've, t- we've talked about this with other guests on the podcast, but when you're a college athlete, you're kind of spoon fed a workout. You know, the, co- the strength coach is always trying to figure out what's the easiest way I can communicate this workout to this athlete. But once you graduate, you're kind of on your own, right? You're, you lose all those tools and structure and you're kind of lost in the wilderness. Yeah. And then you're like a working professional with like an eight to five now or an eight to eight. And you're like, when do I get this in? But most of the athletes who have started at a young age are the ones who are like, okay, I'm going to make the time for this. This is extremely important to me because they started in middle school. And at that point it's, it's ingrained in in their minds. Yeah. So Erica, you and I went to the same college. Um, You played soccer. I played football. Most of the former teammates of mine, once we graduated, a lot of the football guys continued to work out, but solely for the purpose of looking good. I think that's like a pretty stereotypical kind of male uh, perspective on training. I, I, what do you see with some of the former athletes that you've trained? Yeah, that's that's a that's a tough one. I, I think most people now do it for the the aesthetics, and that's a slippery slope because those tend to be the people who don't sustain their workouts and they might just eventually resent uh, fitness. But the people who have that that greater reason to train and they're attaching a feeling to it. They want to feel more confident. They want to feel uh, more energetic when they walk into their, their job or they're talking in a board meeting. And it's it's that emotion that's attached to it where they stick with it a little bit longer. And then what they'll find is they're able to be consistent. And then the the physique goals just happen. Yeah. So that's always been such an interesting find. And that's when, whenever I have like new middle school or even high school athletes come into my facility, I, I ask them, why are you here? <laughs> and if it's just, Oh, no, just speed and agility. And it's just like super vague answer. I do a little more digging. I'm like, no, like really, like, why are you here? Like, why do you want to work out? And then they start to think about, they're like, oh, well, I'm sick of feeling exhausted. I'm sick of being the slowest on my team. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a, that's a good start. And and now we have a little bit more of a greater purpose to really stick to this when it gets hard. Yeah. You're obviously, um, you know, very passionate about the performance field and we're going to spend most of the time on that. Um, I just like to, you know, bring up, a little bit of variety here by you know talking about gen pop so if you have like a mid-20s or an adult client that you can tell was pretty fixated on the aesthetic goals of fitness do you try to steer them towards like a deeper meeting or how do you try to like um do you try to to say impact their perspective on training away from being so you know fixated on the aesthetic yeah with uh with gen pop even with young female athletes with body image it's it's got to be something more than just, okay, well, I want to improve my body composition or cut weight. And that's when I just ask more questions. I'm like, okay, well, how do you want to feel after a workout? Where do you want to be six months from now? Like both mentally and physically. And I, I touch a lot on the mental piece and in terms of, of energy and how are you sleeping? How's your motivation? How's your mood? Are you, are you happy? Are you sad? Are you, are you joyful? Are you depressed? And I want them to really think about like what they're doing in their life that that's serving that. And then they, they're able to find that purpose beyond just the, the aesthetics. 
They, yeah. they just need to be asked the right questions. And I think whenever you're evaluating a gen pop or an athlete, it's you're interviewing them yeah. <laughs> and you want to see what motivates them and where they want to go with all of this and, and what that deeper meaning is. Right. Cause it's easy to want to look good. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. kind of, everyone wants that. That's not necessarily a very personal goal, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, it, and I always find like the people who have that, it, it's okay to want to look good. I'm not saying it's, it's bad. Um, we, we all want to, because that, right. that gives more confidence and, and that's yeah. good. Um, but if it's just that reason, I found that as soon as training gets hard or they're going through the uncomfortable reps or they're failing, then that's when they just can't take the heat. But then when they have that, that deeper purpose, they just keep grinding and they're just so committed to the process and, and addicted to the, the highs and lows and they expect it. And they, they just enjoy the, the whole journey of training because we know it's, it's not going to be perfect. We're not always going to be able to lift as much as we can, or we might have to take a step back and recover and tweak. So it's, it's the athletes and and the clients who, who really embrace that process. Yeah. Committing to the process and not worrying about the results. The results tend to come. It's a good point. I love it. Um, Yeah. And actually there's, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Andrew Huberman. He's an amazing neuroscientist and he does, he's done a lot of research on, where the dopamine hit comes from. And he said, it's not from when people reach that end goal. It's, it's when they reach the end goal, but they're also like looking back on the steps it took to get there. And they're like, wow, that was, that was one hell of a ride. And that's where the dopamine hit comes from is reflecting back on that process and all those wins along the way. So I thought that was really interesting. I I can, um, by the way, when my guests are always like, have you heard of this person? Have you read this book? I know it's like a natural reaction to to do that, but I like I never heard of these people. I never read these books. I'm always like so embarrassed. Right. So I just kind of I don't worry about whether I know about it. Just keep keep talking. <laughs> um, um, but no, I, I that makes sense. I think about like when you get free things, right? When you get something for free, you get like a small dopamine hit. But if, if you think about something that you really value and cherish because you either saved up a long time for it or something, you definitely you know I get a better feeling from that than just getting a freebie. Uh, that's like a little micro, you know, that's the first example that came in my head. It's like, I think of, I look around my office, I look at things we got for free and then I look at things that we paid for and you tend to value the things you paid for much more than you things you got for free. That's so true because it, it was, you know, it was either an investment in money or time or usually both. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you look back and it's like, wow, I, I work so hard for this. And that's, you, you get this, this like psychological confidence and you, you know, you're resilient and, and nothing really phases you at that point. So that's, that's the greatest reward you, you can get from anything. And like you said, anything that's a freebie, you're just like, oh, that was whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I won't spend too much time talking about the nuances of COVID because it seems like every podcast we have that could like dominate the conversation and I'm just sick of talking about it. But let's talk about the fact that you're training people again now in person, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm super grateful. Uh, We started training in person back in early June, all outdoors and 
Yeah. I mean, up until that point when, when March, the lockdown hit and all those months training virtually, I was thankful to be able to still coach. And I think the kids are still thankful to have a routine and to be working through team builder. Um, I, I think the worst thing for our brains is to be so disoriented and to not have some sort of structure. So we, we were really thankful for that, but man, the, the zoom trainings, like we could definitely get a lot of work done in terms of teaching running technique and like really breaking down like arm action and the knee drive and ball of foot strike. Cause we were just in a small space. So we can break that stuff down, which was good, but we couldn't do like max, max speed running. So, um, you know, they either had to do it on their own or we just, when we got back outside in June, that that's what we were doing because the, the speed and the power, those are the first things that, that are lost when, when you're taking a, a month or two off of training. The aerobic fitness, I wasn't worried about as much, but it was really the speed and power that yeah. that we start to pick up again. Yeah, because those are, um, I guess, if someone were to train on their own volition, they probably wouldn't be hitting speed and power like they would be, say, going for a run, which would be aerobic or doing some bodyweight strength-based exercises, right? Is that the most... Is that a good way to put it? Yeah. And um, yeah, as far as the the speech training, when they were doing it on their own, like I gave them time standards so that they, they were hitting like top speeds. But at the same time, it's like when we're in person, it's so much better because we're, we're timing, but we're also racing against each other and nothing beats that competition from the group. And you elicit more effort it, in person. Yeah. Yeah. The, the intensity just rises in person. And then it's just, it's also just so much more fun to be with everyone. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know. Like you, you always train on your own. I always train on my own. Like it's hard to do, but yeah. then when you're with your team and you're running sprints, you're, you're doing a, an intense conditioning drill. It's like, okay, like now I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. And you trained a lot of youth athletes. So did, was it, was it nice to see these kids coming back and training in person? Did they really enjoy that? Oh yeah. It, this, this summer was a blast. I mean, it, I told, and I say this every summer, but I really believe this was our best summer of off season training only because we, we knew that there weren't going to be high school tryouts. We knew that fall season was canceled, but it was just awesome because the kids still showed up and I have never seen them work harder. And, and they weren't even training for this like external thing. They were just uh-huh. training to just train and to just see what they are capable of. And it, I just, this group was just so amazing. And gosh, I mean, I, the last day of off season session this summer, I like almost cried. I was like, wow, like you guys really inspired me wow. because you, you showed me, you don't, you don't need the externals to motivate you. You don't need like the tryouts, the fitness tests, the accolades, the championships, like you guys just want to be better. And it, that, it was just, amazing um and why do you yeah, think so that, why do you think that was the case why do you think they they came out this summer and really put on a great effort gosh i mean i a lot of these kids i've been working with for over most of them over five years so i think training hard and just focusing on their health and their performance was instilled in them at a young age 
So now at this point, it's just habit. Like they can just train just because. And I know that that when they graduate college and go on, like they're still going to do this stuff. So I think it was starting at that middle school age. And that's why I work with mainly middle school athletes. Because once I, once I get them young, then we're training really good habits for not just performance, but also just for your health. And as you know, during this time, your health is everything. Health, you know, and you probably know this from going to school or, you know, or I went to school in the public health area. Health is uh, a long-term, the effects of health are long-term. You have to get someone to kind of see into the future for the, you know, the decisions they make today. Um, a middle school student, how do you get a middle school student to like focus on health? I mean, that, that seems like it'd be harder to do. It's already hard to do with like adults. Yeah. Make it fun. That's just because like, I, I never want them to have a, a, a bad taste in their mouth about fitness. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've all observed sessions where coaches are just, you know, drill sergeants and just running kids into the ground. And at that age, at that elementary middle school age, they're, they're just meant to explore, to move, to have fun, to compete, to, to play games. So that age, um, that, that's why I start with that age, because I want to show them that movement is fun and movement is healing and movement is a way for you to express yourself. So it always has to be fun. And I think that's another reason why they, they, they stuck with it because every session, it has always been enjoyable for them. And even now when they're in high school, we're, we're always working hard, but my goal is to make sure that they're just like completely exhausted and feel like they did something really productive. But at the end, they're just like smiling and they're like, wow, that was, that was awesome. Uh, were you always good at, at doing that creating sessions that were fun? Do you feel like this was something you've kind of learned over the years? Yeah, I, I think it's something I I've always had as a coach, just because when I was doing strength and conditioning with my coach, when, when I had started middle school, we were always doing like, we did tug of war, we like pushed his pickup truck and just like all these crazy things. We did like water balloon tag. And I was like, like, of course I, I enjoyed the session. So I just kept coming back, kept coming back. And now here I am at age 30 and I, I love lifting. I love moving. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just try that with my athletes. And it seemed to work. And I've also followed uh, Jeremy Frisch's stuff and Potty Rochi and just these amazing guys in the, in the long-term athletic development community who are just ensuring kids are getting that exposure to a variety of movement. And they're also having fun at the same time. Yeah. Long-term athletic development. Anyone can kind of go look up the, the definition and read a couple of papers in the NSCA. But do you have a like a personal opinion or a perspective on on what it means to you and how you would say define it in your terms? Mm -hmm. It's you know I think a lot of people think long term athletic development is just for athletes, but it's it's for all humans. Okay, so so all humans should be should be covering at least like five to six miles of movement a day. Wow. Whether whether it's walking or, you know, doing your lift or um, riding a scooter or jump roping, whatever it is, it's just got to be, you got to be covering that ground. And 
you know, physically it's important for everyone because we want to be able to balance ourselves. We don't want to fall when we're older. We want, we want to be strong. We want to be able to constantly stimulate our body and load with weights or different muscle actions. So it's, it's just like this lifetime pursuit of just continuing to add stimulus to the body, continuing to challenge the body so that you become your strongest self. So it's, it's for all humans. It doesn't even need to be for youth athletes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think anyone, of course, your, your, your gym is doing a good job at it. Do you think, are there any like mainstream fitness uh, companies or gyms that you think are doing a good job at kind of promoting what you just talked about? Oh yeah. There, there's so many. I mean, um, my friend, Ivy Casagrande, she's at, she is in, um, Orlando. UK. Uh, she just left Orlando. She said oh, she's really? in the UK now. Yeah. But she used to work at a place called Redline athletics. They did mm-hmm. a really good job with youth. Obviously Jeremy Frisch does a great job with like elementary middle schoolers with like the obstacle course training and different like crawling patterns and just, all these like different like med ball variations, just like cool stuff for kids that really help with mobility and stability. Um, And a lot of people in in the EPL, I mean, just so, so many amazing performance coaches at many youth soccer academies. Uh, Potty Richie was one of them. I had named just, I I just get most of my ideas from, from them to be honest. And I think everyone's just kind of exchanging them and just, trying to just serve these kids the best a lot of soccer names that you mentioned there is that because of your involvement in soccer do you, do you think soccer performance coaches have done a good job at LTAD because of the necessity just by the fact that they work with a lot of youth athletes soccer academies by nature have a lot of young athletes playing one sport yeah I mean one sport is always uh a big deal. So yeah, I follow a lot of soccer performance coaches, especially at like the higher level youth academies, because these kids, since they're in the academy level they're they are playing year round. So technically you can say that they are early specializing, mm-hmm. but what these, these guys and, and girls have done as far as performance coaching is they've just uh, sprinkled in other components of athleticism outside of soccer. So I know some are doing like handball, jujitsu, certain gymnastics movements, just so that kids are building the the entirety of them. And they're not just overusing the quads or the hip flexors and all the muscles that are involved in soccer, Mm -hmm. but they're, they're building the back and and the shoulders and the core so that they, they have the posture to run at full speed or to change direction, reposition efficiently. So just, they're doing such a great job of taking early specializers and building them into complete athletes. <laughs> yeah. Do we, should we talk about specialization, specialization, for instance, we, we can maybe touch on it a little bit. I, I think it's pretty clear that to anyone who follows like uh, strength and conditioning on Twitter, probably like the biggest drum that strength coaches want to beat is, you know, don't specialize athletes, don't specialize athletes that that happens all the time. But, you know, I think the reality is, is that, um, that they probably beat that drum a little bit too loud. Um, I and, used to. <laughs> but you used to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We yeah. all have. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there are a lot of multi-sport athletes out there. And um, there's also, you know, two sides of the coin on, on that one. So take, for instance, I sat on a plane next to a random stranger. And uh, this woman had a daughter in a huge high school. I'm talking like maybe three or 4,000 kids in this high school. 
that's massive. And she said that her daughter really loves softball, really wanted to play, but they only take, you know, 25 girls, I think, on the varsity team. And there are many, many people who try out. She you know, said that, look, I truly believe that the only way for my daughter to make this team was to do travel softball and to at some point really, really prioritize it over other sports in order to, to kind of do it. And, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, felt sympathetic to that. Like, of course, it would be ideal if this girl can play multiple sports or whatever, but she wants to especially be good at one. And, you know, she probably had to specialize, you know, maybe as a freshman or whatever to ensure that she had a spot on that team. So, yeah, that was just one of my personal experiences. Yeah, it's, you know, I used to just preach so loudly, like early specialization is terrible. <laughs> But it's it's only terrible if you're just doing that sport and you're not pr- doing the work on the back end to be able to withstand all of those repetitive actions and really dynamic and fatiguing actions in your sport. So something like softball, I mean, they need strength and conditioning the most. So I, I totally believe in, yes, to, for skill acquisition, you need to get the reps in. So if, if you're pitching, throwing, or kicking a soccer ball, you need to learn the technique and you need to repeat it over and over again to learn it. But you also need to make sure that your muscles that do those skills are strong. Otherwise, that's where your, over, your overuse happens. Hmm. So for, for softball players, you want to make sure that you're strengthening the, the entirety of the shoulder and the back and the core. Otherwise, all those throws over and over again, it's just, it's just going to turn into overuse and it's going to be a disaster. So I always say, like, if, if you're going to early specialize, you either have to do strength and conditioning on the back end or strength and conditioning on the back end, plus just play some recreational sports that are not your organized sport. Even if it's just as simple as just like shooting hoops with your dad in the front yard or playing dodgeball with your family, just get getting in that, that variety. And a, a lot of people always ask, well, how does that help with soccer? And of course it exposes them to different, different muscle actions and just builds their body and and their coordination. But from a tactical standpoint, I love things like handball and dodgeball because you really have to use your brain to to react and think like 10 steps ahead. So tactically, they're going to get on the field in soccer and they're going to be able to make that run quicker. They're going to be able to get behind the defense. So that's, it's more so about brain development than anything. So I always encourage recreational multi-sports you t- look tell me if i'm just absolutely wrong here but oftentimes big plays in a sports game someone is 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 taking on a movement that's not really common to the game they're they're not really movements that are practiced on the field as fundamentals over and over again they're usually kind of these extraordinary out of the framework of the games as far as you know as far as big plays you know oftentimes you see that yeah, yeah, it is. Or it's like a game that's kind of like a, a more challenging stimulus than your sport. So if you're playing like small sided handball, man, like the, the quick movement off the ball is is quicker than soccer sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, and like, it's also like the hand-eye coordination and like, you got to be aware of the feel instead of like always looking down at your feet and the ball. So the more I can get, especially the young ones to, to look up more and see what's going on and set like all that skill work, we're always looking at our feet and I don't like that. So the more I can give them games where they are working on hand-eye coordination, because it absolutely translates to soccer, the better. And, um, I, I also do want to mention Zlatan, he used to do Taekwondo, I think. And it was, I think it was a couple years ago, uh, when he started for LA galaxy, he had that like karate kick from like the 50 yard line. And I'm like, and he scored like upper 90 and I'm like, dude, like it was the Taekwondo. (laughs) (laughs) It had to be like, how else could he get his leg up that high and jump? I was like, dang, it all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I believe it. I mean, uh, he also broke a guy's nose. I think that was like a year ago. That that might have been the Taekwondo as well. I don't know if you yeah, saw that. Yeah, oh my gosh. He cele- celebrated with an elbow. <laughs> but no, you, I mean, you look at all these these high-level athletes like Zlatan, Abby Wambach, Alex Morgan, Michael Jordan, like the all the greats, they all played other sports. So why aren't why aren't kids and parents following suit? Because it clearly it works. Yeah. <laughs> At, at least in a strategic way, right? Because going back to that right. mom on the plane, you know, and I can kind of relate to this because I, I I, didn't early specialize, but once I got to high school, I think my dad sat me down and he's like, look, if you really want to go play in college, you kind of have to pick a sport and really pursue that one. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't, I, I probably had room to play other sports, at least informally, but I, I don't think it means that you just devote equal amounts of time to three sports across the year, but like you said, it just means being more strategic on the back end as you're pursuing that primary sport. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just it's it's good for kids, especially up until that high school year to to um, sample and to get in their resistance training, because that's when the most neural development is happening. So it's like that critical period of, of brain growth, but also even just like physiologically, they're going through growth spurt and that that has its own concerns as far as bones growing faster tendons muscles and we have like stress fractures that could be an issue or um like overuse in the patellar tendon like the knee so we need to be doing resistance training to be able to reduce the chance and to make sure our bones are stronger and and more durable and make sure our muscles are strong as well so it's okay to to niche down when, when you are in high school, like you said. So after you get through that period of growth. Right. Um, so, you know, for those listening who don't know, Erica was a prolific soccer player at Hopkins. Um, would you consider yourself early specialized? Um, and I only ask because you, you, um, physically were, were yes, better than many of your competitors watching you play, but also your, your skills, your sports specific skills were, I think, definitely far and away better than a lot of people in the field. So how did you, how did you, how do you look back at your own development as a player and display? You know, I, <laughs> I attribute it to being a part tomboy <laughs> and just, you know, just being with my, my brother's friends. I mean, I grew up up with all boys. And so we, in the neighborhood from like age, like six to 13, I was playing tackle football and basketball and 
capture the flag and dodgeball and hide and seek in the dark and just like all these games that just develop my my body awareness, my coordination, my ability to react, my speed. I mean, hide and seek in the dark, man, you are sprinting so hard, like more than like a time sprint, I would say. Um, so yeah, it was being part tomboy, but also like part early sampler. I, I played lacrosse. I played yeah. lacrosse and soccer when I was in middle school. And again, lacrosse is just so transferable to soccer because of you're, you're getting that ability to scan the field and of course your head's up. So it's more hand eye coordination, but also just creating and dodging defenders and one V ones. And I always love the roll dodge in lacrosse and I don't know what the other moves were, but there's like different body fakes and just like how to shield. So I felt all of that just translated to soccer and just my confidence with soccer specific skills. And of course I was doing strength and conditioning all through middle school, all through high school. And then when I get to college, it's like, I, I reached the peak of my career and that's, we don't want kids to peak at age 13. I think a lot of parents want them to, and they just like, you know, they just throw so many skills trainers and all these lessons at them. And it's like, no, like this is all, it comes back to the long-term journey. Like we want athletes to peak in college because that's where most of them want to go. And I felt I peaked and I peaked creatively. I felt I was just confident in one-on-ones and my skills and I peaked as far as my strength. I mean, my speed, I never had been faster and it just was this amazing moment senior year of college. Like, wow, I, all those years of early sampling and strength and conditioning, like really have compounded to this moment. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a great personal journey to be honest. Yeah. It's a cool story. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your experience with strength and conditioning during college? Cause even though we, we went, <laughs> and we're the exact same age as well. So we graduated right. this year and, um, but everyone's situation is different. So we shared the same weight room, but my strength coach was a football coach assistant, you know, that just filled in as the strength coach, which is very common at D3. Um, and people got stronger and, and bigger and all that stuff, but it came with some cost. you know, that's, that's my retrospective. So like, you know, what, what was your retrospective on your S and C experience in college? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, honestly, it was a rough one. So, you know, all those years, middle and high school, I had a, a, a strength coach. So a certified strength coach, he actually was at university of Maryland men's lacrosse at the time, wow. but he also worked with kids. So I was with someone who was like legit and then I get it, get to Johns Hopkins and the soccer team didn't have a strength coach at the time. So this was back in 2008 to 2012. So we ended up just kind of creating our own workouts, which it was good and bad. I mean, like some of our captains, like were really into like P90X like, <laughs> and it's like embarrassing to admit this, but like it was better than nothing. Like we were, we were loading and doing weights. We weren't just doing body weight stuff. Um, so we were doing that, which man, I, looking back, I'm glad I stayed healthy all through college, (laughs) but it it really was such a change because I was like, dang, like I thought I would have a a strength coach, but with division three programs, it it took them a little bit longer to actually start hiring legit people. And now Hopkins does have someone extremely, legit. Um, but yeah, we just, we just didn't have it when I was in college. So we were just kind of creating our, our own workouts and yeah, yeah it, it wasn't easy. (laughs) 
Oh, um, so I, over the years, I guess I've, I've been doing team builder for seven years now. I've seen lots and lots of division three programs bring on, you know, quote unquote, legit strength coaches and legit strength coaches, strength coaches that have a specific certification that are specifically paid to do strength and conditioning. It's not like they're backfilling uh, another position, um, right. you know, experienced, um, keep current with programming and research. But and that's the good news. But I, I know what you mean. Back then, I mean it. It was our college, but a lot of others, and we still won a lot of games. But that was just the nature of the of the industry, I guess, the Division three uh, landscape, if you will. Uh, but I do think back sometimes and think, you know, what if I had access to all these strength coaches that I know today? What if I just had access to them at the high school level, all the way through the collegiate level? I guess there's no point in doing that, but sometimes you wonder, you know. Right. <laughs> um, so um, obviously you have some, you have experience and you speak a lot on the uh, topic of training female athletes. And this is something we covered in our podcast a couple of years ago. I remember this one thing you said, it always stuck with me. I thought it was so good. And you talked about this concept of training for more when it comes to female athletes that, you know, it had been ingrained just through pop culture and like, you know, fitness from the past that w women train for less, you know, less you know, body fat or less, you know, size or less whatever. And you, you said, we're flipping that we're talking about training for more. And is that, you know, still a concept that you think about today? And has that evolved since we last spoke about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've kept the, the message the same. So with, with any new female athletes I get, I mean, they'll be very, um, I guess, hesitant to come into the gym and a little bit unsure of what's going on, but it's just communicating with them. Hey, like we're here to give you more in your performance. So more meaning more power, more speed, more, more energy to sustain in, in the final minutes of the game, as far as your conditioning. So I, I don't want them to, to come in with, you know, those, those aesthetic goals or lose weight. It's more like, okay, we're going to, we're going to change the words we use and we're going to focus more on performance. So more, more muscle growth, um, more mobility, more, more stability in the core and in the pelvic area, and just making sure that they're just more robust to perform and be fast and be strong, but also more resilient to, to handle the, the demands of their game and, and some of the more fatiguing actions like cutting and changing direction as far as injury reduction. Yeah. As far as gen pop, you take the, the same approach. I mean, I think you said earlier, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look better, but let's focus on training for more and then the, the physical results will come. Is that how you still approach it with gen pop? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, just more. I always use use energy, more, more energy or mm -hmm. improved mood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people are working professionals, it's like you you have high stress jobs. OK, whether you're an eye banker or a surgeon or an accountant or, you know, an, an IT person, you need to be sharp. You, you need to feel confident in yourself. So I, I try to try to focus on that as, as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about your college versus private sector experience. So right now you're, you're a private sector coach and have been for a few years now, right? Yeah, I've so I've been private sector for eight and a half years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's gone by extremely fast. <laughs> um, and then prior to, to starting in that, you had two internships at University of Maryland and at uh, Johns Hopkins, our alma mater. Um, so why don't you compare and contrast a little bit your experiences so far? So when, when I started strength and conditioning, I thought I wanted to work with college athletes. I thought that was like the end game. Yeah. But I had been training youth athletes since 2012 and I loved it, but I don't know. I don't know why. Like I just, during that time I was like, okay, I'll just try this internship as I'm like coaching youth athletes full time, just to see what I like, just to get my feet wet. And I had in, interned at university of Maryland and the, the strength and conditioning staff was amazing. The internship was just, it was super hands-on. We were working with all the teams like wrestling, men's lacrosse, uh, men's soccer, gymnastics, softball, tennis, golf. Like I got to experience like all the Olympic sports and I, I enjoyed it, but I, I don't know. I just felt like way too close in age. And I mean, at the time, and I just felt like I just, I don't know. I just liked hanging out with younger kids. Like, cause I really, I wanted to like really teach and to like start kids with good habits. And when you're getting college athletes, it's a pretty mixed bag. Like some of them are, you know, they had been doing strength and conditioning up until college, but you have to like kind of reteach them out of their bad habits. And that's, that's really hard to do. And I, I really give it to college strength coaches for, for being able to do that. It just, it just really wasn't for me. And then just, you know, working with the, the athletic director and all of the different coaching personalities and just, I'd rather be talking with the parents of kids because mm -hmm. I felt like I could create more impact there. So yeah. I'd rather talk to the parents than be a medium between like the athletes and like their team coach in the college sector. Yeah. But I think a part of me just like really wanted to be on my own and, and to be independent and own a business. And I'm such a creative, so I want to be creative in my own programming and not kind of like tied down and like walking on eggshells with the college the coaches. Practices, so, the schedules and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and the travel was another one. Like just getting up at 5 a.m. for a 5.45 a.m. lift with the baseball team, I was like, I, I don't want to do this. And I just see our industries like, well, you got to grind to like earn your spot and like this is how it is. And I agree with um, Brett conscious coaching, like coach Brett B. It doesn't have to be this way in our industry. And you can go into this other world in the private sector and still make a, a huge impact and work with a lot of athletes and still have sanity in your schedule and have time for self-care, you know? <laughs> so that was very unattractive to me and just constantly traveling and being on the bus. I just, I didn't want any part of it. <laughs> yeah. Does Brett B talk about self-care in his book? Um, he, in his like coaching courses and just like his message on Twitter, mm -hmm. it's a lot about just taking time for yourself as a coach and just like creating your day so that it serves you and you're not constantly like on the entire day. And yeah. I know it is, it is hard in, in the college sector because of schedules, but I think he's working to, to change that for our industry. And I think it's so needed because a lot of coaches that I talk to in the college sector are just, 
anxiety is at an all time high and they feel like they're under so much pressure and they're not getting paid enough and they're resenting their job. And like, we didn't get in this to resent our jobs. Like we got in this because we love coaching athletes. So when you're constantly grinding, eventually you're just going to lose that passion. Like I've been there, I've burned out and it, and it sucks. Like you don't want to go to your sessions and like, it's not a good place to get to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to parents, what are some important things for, you, you know, you to know, or for a private strength coach to know when it communicating with parents, what's that like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's early in my career. It, it was hard because I, I would get frustrated and, and blame them and be like, well, they just don't get it. They just don't get why strength and conditioning is important. And, the onus was on me. Like now I have to really communicate in a simple way. Okay. This is why we train two times a week so that they get the results they want. This is why you need to at least commit to six months. And that this is a long haul thing because that first month we train, that's just a teaching month. I can't, I can't really improve their speed times. I can't really get their muscles stronger, especially if they're growing, going through the growth spurt. So just educating on what's going on physiologically with the kid, what it's going to take to get to where they want to go. And, you know, I've had people who they're so on board with it and I've worked with them for many years and I've had people who aren't on board with it. And that's fine too. As long as I communicate the truth of what I know based on science and the consistency kids need for training, that's all I can do. And I think parents overall appreciate when you, you explain the science in a simple way, but you also explain the results of, of your body of work and who you've, who you've worked with. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's just coming back to that, that education piece and not, you know, their parents aren't evil. They just need to be educated. <laughs> the parents that are not on board, are they just looking for faster results? Is that, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, they are. And I'm sure every private sector coach has been there, especially early on. They'll just take whoever and it's like, okay, like we'll work together for like a couple of weeks. And like, for me, that's more like transactional training yeah. and just, you know, making the money instead of transformational training. So now I don't do that. I always tell people, here's the commitment. Here's what you need to do. Like if you're signing up for my program, you're committing to like, this is like a lifetime thing and they're going to learn, you know, not only physical, but they're going to learn this for, for the rest of their life. (laughs) So some are on board and uh, you know, a small few just, just aren't. And I recommend them to the trainer down the road that takes people for quick results. And I'm totally fine with that. (laughs) Like you can have these people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We can, uh, we can probably come up with some sort of analogy here at Team Builder as well. There's not every customer who's willing to pay you is yeah. good for your business. That that's a universal truth. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the the product you have is just it's so incredible and it's it's going to take a, an investment. And if people really want to make a drastic change in, in their strength and conditioning program and have something that's user friendly and makes life easier for them and they're willing to pay for that, that's awesome. But if they don't see the value in that, then it's not a fit and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that uh, very commonly people have good ideas and good requests. They just happen to be really, really unique to them. And we have the kind of business and the kind of product where we can only really build things that benefit all of our customers and not just a few customers. And that's 
a conversation that takes place on a weekly basis. You know, we say, look, it's your idea is valid. It's good. I just, you know, we, it's, we can tell that this is not going to benefit 90% of our customers. And that's kind of how we base decisions. There's probably some similar things that happen with your business and many businesses, you know, you can't be everything for everyone. Yeah, you can't. And I found that the more you just stay true to yourself and, and your values and your philosophy, you're, you're just going to attract the people who are on board with that. And that's and those are the people that you can help the most and, yeah. and create the most change. And I've I've become a lot more accepting of that in, in the past few years. Yeah. Maybe Amazon can be everyone, everything for everyone. They're getting pretty close. Yeah. Like dangerous. <laughs> that's like, true. They're they're getting yeah. there. That's true conflicted about those guys, you know? Um, <laughs> so as we were chatting before the recording here, you talked about how recently you've been inspired to, you know, train the human as opposed to the player, train the human as opposed to the soccer player. So, you know, can obviously can you expand on that, but can you tell us like what's kind of inspired this, this perspective within you? Is it someone in particular or something you've been reading or like a self-discovery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's a multitude of things. So just just from like my personal research in my own life over over the past couple years, like I used to be someone who just just like trained really hard, worked my butt off, and I just I never took a step back. And that's when I had burned out. That's when like you know anxiety was at an all time high and. I went, I ended up going to the ER for, for wow. fainting and uh, I had two faint spells in one week. And that's why I say like, it's important for everyone to like analyze their life. So Both I was like, wow, like, induced. yeah, yeah. Wow. And just overworking and just, I, I was doing too much. So yeah. yeah, this was back in 2018 and, you know, I get back from the hospital. I'm just like, what? Like I, I need to preach not only recovery and, and resting, but also like all the other pieces that can, can impact your life and how you perform. So sleep, sleep quality wasn't good at the time. Um, nutrition was okay. Um, my, just like my overall stress management, I was, I wasn't meditating. I wasn't taking time to go for walks. I was constantly on my phone and on social media. And I just was analyzing all these pieces and then once I started to get in the habit of taking inventory of all those pieces to, to my performance and into athletic performance, that's when the positive change happened. And I hadn't burned out since. So then I was like, okay, I really need to share this with, with my athletes mm-hmm. because I'm also seeing in the youth world, their anxiety is at an all-time high. I don't think, I don't think kids are really better off nowadays. Like there's, there's a lot of anxiety there. There's more depression and I, I really want to help them, you know, not to heal it, but to just be able to navigate it better. Mm-hmm. So if it's something serious and they have to, you know, I, they have to find a, a professional or like someone who can really help them. But as a, as a strength coach, I need to, expose them to all these pieces of performance and to, you know, give them some advice on how to sleep better, how to nourish their bodies for energy and for fuel, or give them resources to dietitians, how to meditate. I mean, <laughs> when I first introduced meditation to my athletes, people thought I was nuts. Yeah. Now now they're all doing it. And what what we found is 
during their their highest periods of, of load in their training, they're not sore because they're able to reset and calm their nervous system. So their perception of soreness is a lot lower. So they're, they're meditating and they're just recovering as hard as they train. So now we're like, oh, wow, like maybe we're on to something. So this is far more than just what we're doing in the gym. Yeah. But not to turn this into like the Tim Ferriss podcast, but on, on <laughs> I'm all topic, for that, you know, like <laughs> we, can, we can do that. We might lose half our audience. Um, yeah. <laughs> whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, fine. You know, meditation, you know, for the longest time, I, yeah, I wasn't interested in it. And of course, um, one of these apps come out, it's not, uh, it's headspace. Um, so yeah. enough people, and I think I was actually reading like something in Tim Ferriss, but like I, I was reading enough or listening to enough stuff where it's like, you know, meditation is very beneficial. I started trying it. I will admit it's a hard habit to build. But I could tell, you know, after a good session, it's almost like getting done with a workout. It's not quite an endorphin rush, but you get like some clarity that usually comes, some peace of mind that you usually get after a good workout. And uh, I remember like my youngest brother, I was trying to tell him about meditation or like like, asking him to to do it with me or try it out or something. I remember my dad being in the next room and be like, hey, don't don't talk to him about that. Don't don't teach him that stuff. And I think it's just like, um, this stuff like meditation, there's other interventions as well that were just like looked away from for so long that, um, you know, I think they're probably being overlooked now and uh, a little bit stigmatized, but it seems like you, you kind of broke through that with, with meditation. Any other interventions that you think were kind of like overlooked that you've turned to? Yeah, there are. So one thing I do want to say as far as meditation first is I think there's a stigma around it because... <laughs> People think like you have to be some like spiritual hippie, you know, with like bohemian tapestries in your room. You don't like I I had just did a podcast on uh, the soccer queens podcast that I host and on meditation for beginners. And I was like, you literally like like I'm meditating now because I'm breathing through my belly. Like you can be meditating when you're listening to Metallica. As long as you're focusing on diaphragmatic breathing. That's probably better for me. It's actually. Yeah. See, and, and you're probably your audience or like it could be a walking meditation. Just don't bring your phone and just go outside and just like look at your surroundings and that's it. Yeah. And just be quiet. So it doesn't need to be like you like in East Asia sitting under a tree, like crisscross style, <laughs> you know, like you all can your just, possessions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> drinking matcha tea or, or whatever it is, but you can just focus on diaphragmatic breathing. And I'm sure a lot of coaches in your audience or even athletes, they know what that is. Yeah. They, they learn how to do that. And that's, it's just getting in all of those belly breaths throughout the day, the best you can. Yeah. So someone who is suspicious of meditation, perhaps the best answer to them is to say, you, you actually do meditate. You just don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> and anything that you do that's relaxing to you, that kind of puts you in a, in a flow state. Yeah. You're, you're, you're meditating already. Exactly. And if they're, if they're new to it and and just want to try it, like lying down as like as little as four minutes is great. Like if you are really focusing on slowing your breath, like you'll get out of that four minutes and you'll have more clarity, like you said. And sometimes people say they feel like they just took a nap like a power nap, which is really good for athletes, especially if they've accumulated a lot of sleep debt and they they had 
sleep well for, you know, the past several days. So med- meditation or just taking a nap is, is a good way to help with that. Right. Um, so just to circle back to your earlier story about 2018, yeah. it like, you know, you, you had some un- subconscious unhealthy behavior. Maybe it was conscious. I don't know. What do you think was driving that behavior? Was it just your, did you think you were working hard? Was it motivation to stand out as a coach or be a high performer? What, what kind of drove you to that point? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, if you're a private sector coach, it's, it's definitely just being able to get your message out there. And if you're running a business, like you always feel like you have to be so productive, mm-hmm. um, posting on social media, constantly yeah. coaching, working Market. out your like looking the part. So it was just, it was just like all of that for several months. And I just, I didn't press pause. And when I, when I did eventually press pause, then what I found was I was actually more productive. (laughs) I was more rested and more productive. And I think I needed to hit that rock bottom point of burnout and going to the emergency room to, really make a shift because man, that was just, it, it, it was awful. And I'm sure a lot of coaches listening have been there and they just haven't really talked about it. You know, whether it was, they just had high anxiety or they lashed out at their spouse or whatever it was. I'm sure everyone's been there. I mean, the strength and conditioning industry, it's, it's hard and it's, it's constantly evolving. You constantly have to stay behind the research yet. You you're serving your athletes, you're serving different personalities and coaches, and you're just one person like juggling all of that. Like that's a lot. Yeah. So just really pressing pause and just taking time for yourself just in the long run, it's, it's better for your mental health and, and your creativity and productivity. Yeah. Good. Um, we could talk a little bit of soccer here and take a turn. And, and by the way, I just want to say, I, I, I don't define you as you know, like a soccer person, you know, even though you've, you've did have a great career and you've trained a lot of soccer players, but I guess soccer is kind of exciting for guys like me because, you know, we grew up playing football and that was like the main thing and soccer is growing in popularity. It's a lot of fun. And like here in the office recently, a lot of people just kind of got into soccer for some reason. We're kind of late, we're kind of late to the party. But we're here nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so why don't we talk about um, U.S. women's soccer? So it's no secret they are like disproportionately more successful than the men's team. Not to take away from the men's team. Just want to recognize the women's team for what they've done. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering, what's the reason for our U.S. women's team doing so well on the, on the international stage as opposed to, say, our, our men's team? Is there a reason for, for why that is? Well, the, the main theory is, is that most of the best athletes in men's sports are going to like foot your football and and basketball. I mean, it, it makes sense. And I think that's, that's why I think the, the women's team is better, but I don't know. I think the the men's team just struggle to find their identity when playing. So like when you look at like um, men's teams in Brazil, like their identity is more creative and carefree. Um, German, Germany is more like attacking minded and Spain is like possession and it looks like ping pong and they're like connecting a hundred passes a time. Um, the, but the men's team just, they don't really have an identity. And I don't know if it's, 
a management issue or a coaching issue. It, it could be. And um, the, I know the women's team, like they've had just amazing coaching staff over the years. Uh, their former performance coach, Don Scott, has done amazing yeah. work and in really introducing them to Olympic lifting and, and real like heavy strength training and also like proper recovery and her new research on how to manage the the menstrual cycle and what things we have to tweak as far as nutrition and sleep. So they just have just, just a awesome staff. And just, I think a lot of the women on the team now, like they, most of them were early samplers too. So they, they are just overall great athletes, but then their skills are just amazing. So I think it's just a multitude of things. How would you describe the U.S. women's soccer team's identity similar to how you define those other countries? Yeah, I, I'd say they're just athletic and attacking minded. Like, it's just exciting to watch them. Like, I, I don't even know how many goals they scored in, in the World Cup last year, but it was, it was a lot. I mean, their, their attack is just amazing, but, but their defense holds it down, too, and they get up and yeah, they're just, they're just exciting to watch. And I'd say they're a little bit creative as well. Individually, um, like Tobin Heath, extremely creative. Rose Bell, um, new player, rookie, extremely creative. The nutmeg is her move. So just like all these like unique personalities, just able to collectively come together, which is yeah. really hard to do because, you know, you can have like a team where everyone's like super good and like prima donnas, but it's not clicking, but they click. Yeah. Does, um, the sports that your athletes play at the youth level, does that, is that become calculated for you at all when it comes to training or does it, is it like a minor consideration? The, the sport that you're training, the athletes you're training. What, what do you, so uh, like if a youth athlete came to you and said, Hey, I really love lacrosse. Like I am a lacrosse player. Um, do you, yeah, how, how much do you take that into consideration? If you like bring them on as a client. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've had that a, a couple of times. Um, I actually have a, a girl, she's, she's nine years old and she, she just lives and breeds soccer. I mean, she's like a little messy, like legit. She's going to, she's going to be so good. And she, she's one of those girls that just practices on her own. Like her mom's always sending me videos of this little nine-year-old in her front yard. And I was like, wow, that kind of reminds me of myself. But, you know, I, I tell the parents again, like, she needs to be exposed to these other things too. I'm all for her doing all this soccer. It's great, but just make sure she, she has that, that childhood and all those other activities so that when she does reach high school, she doesn't like hit a wall Mm -hmm. uh, tactically, especially. And your role in that is just to just be her strength coach, just take her through training, fun movement patterns, make sure she has fun, not always make it about soccer when she's with you. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she wants to make it about soccer and that's when it's like, okay, well maybe just like 10 minutes in our warm up, we're doing like some crawling patterns or just like something else, like sneaking it in. Cause uh-huh. you know, with, with, with a nine-year-old, you, <laughs> who loves soccer that much, it's like, you, you want to make sure that she's enjoying the session because she loves doing the ball work, but then it's like, okay, like we're going to do this warm up real quick, like yeah. do this at home too. And just kind of like slipping it in there. Yeah. Was there a team during your college years that you specifically enjoyed working with? Um, you mean like, yeah, like just a team that stands out in your mind, either culturally or, or, you know, just whatever. 
that I like to watch or that, you know, I know that you like to work with, like as a coach train that you like to train. You know, I don't really, so I like all of them. So yeah, when I interned at, at Maryland, they, they were all great. I mean, what stood out for me was wrestling. Uh-huh. It, it was just like, they were really tough personalities. Um, so that really challenged me as a coach because they, they wanted to just like lift heavy, which is awesome, but like at the expense of terrible form. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really challenging as a, as an intern to go up to them and be like, Hey, like you need to drop that 10 pounds. Like, I'm sorry, yeah. dude. <laughs> so it kind of just like got my feet wet, which is like really standing my ground as, as a coach. And, uh-huh. you know, when you're in your early twenties working with wrestlers, it's a, it's a little bit scary. And also as a female coach, you're like, okay, should I really tell them to drop 10 pounds? Will this like destroy their ego? <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was tough. <laughs> yeah. Do you see that today in private sector? Do you generally have to tell your male athletes to, drop weight and improve form and do you feel like you have to do the opposite with say female athletes at least maybe the newer athletes you work with yeah I've had to tell a couple of high school boys to do that but I think more so than college guys they're more receptive and Mm -hmm. and understanding because they yeah I don't know what it is but it's just it's just that age where they're just like still kind of learning so it's like whenever you tell them hey like this is better for you they're like oh okay sure fine they, yeah. they don't try to fight it. Yeah. Um, a couple minutes left here. I thought maybe we could finish up by just talking a little bit about um, your routines, for instance. So, you know, obviously you, you, you know, I'm sure changed things up since 2018. I'm just kind of interested in like things that you prioritize, you know, when you, you know, quote unquote, took inventory of your life. What are some things you decided to keep and emphasize and so on? Um, do you have anything you want to share as far as that goes? Yeah, gosh, some my my mantra now is just to live minimally. <laughs> like just to cut out all the noise in my life. Like even like social media, I I have a girl who runs my accounts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like 90% of the time it's it's not me, you guys. <laughs> I don't I don't want any part of it because I feel it's taking away my energy from like why I started this business in the first place. And that's to coach athletes. So I don't, I don't want to be tweeting all day. I don't want to be on Instagram. Um, so I want to save the the mental space for the things I truly love to do. And that's coaching, writing, and now doing my own podcast. So just trying to cut certain things out. I mean, um, I, (laughs) I don't drink uh, caffeine anymore, which people think, yeah, which that's a that's new one. That's a big step. It is a big step. And <laughs> I was just finding, you know, that the sleep quality was was going down and the anxiety. So then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just try this and, and taper it off and see what happens. And now it's just, I'm experiencing the benefits and I'm like, oh, I'm a lot more like calmer in situations. I'm sleeping better. And it's hard as a strength coach, but like once you have natural energy, you really don't go back to caffeine. Like you're just like, Oh, I'm like a just consistent level all day. And I know it's going to sound so crazy for a lot of people listening, but um, yeah, that was another one. I don't drink alcohol anymore. Just all this crazy stuff. Like Hewitt, I've completely changed since we last talked, but (laughs) (laughs) no, I mean, (laughs) 
you're not the only one, but I, I will admit that you're in like a minority of people who've taken these steps, but they all kind of say the same thing. These, these things we're talking about tend to yield results. No one's really done what you're talking about and said that they're worse off for it. It's yeah, it's true. And I mean, it's, it's always those like hardest changes that you've done for so many years and then you stop them. That's, those are the best ones for you. And you know, there's, there's no right or wrong. It's like, just take inventory and, and just look at like what you're consuming, whether it's food or just, you know, anything else. And is it working for you? And does it make sense? And if the answer is no, then maybe make a small change. (laughs) So it's, it's hard to do, but I mean, I think like giving up those two caffeine and alcohol have like just every aspect of my life has just gotten better, uh, professionally, um, like friendships, just, just everything and just more clarity and and more energy. So have you had to cut any people out of your life? Uh, No, um, not at all. I mean, it's, a lot of my friends, like when I'll like still go out with them, like they still, they still drink, but you know, they don't judge me for what I do and I don't judge them. And you know, if they would judge me, then it's like, okay, you're not, why am I friends with you? So uh, I'm just glad like my people are supportive and they understand. And even some of them have started to try it and they're like, Oh, Whoa, like we never would have thought. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to discover it for yourself. I'm not here to like lecture you on your life. Like you just got to figure out what works and yeah. what, what helps you. What, are there any things that you say you added? Uh, well, you said you, you added meditation. Are there some things that yeah. you've added to your lifestyle, your routine that you think are important? Yeah, I've added uh, daily meditation and just, I started to learn how to skateboard. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Like, so, so I'm a big snowboarder and it's only like a couple months of the year where I can actually go. So now I'm like, okay, well in the warmer months, I want to do a similar activity because I love it so much. And I feel like I'm in that flow meditative state. So I picked up skateboarding and I do that like every morning when I wake up (laughs) or I'll go for a walk. So just kind of like getting my day started with some leisure it sounds like one of these additional stimuli that you mentioned and oh, yeah. <laughs> athletic development that you said it's for everyone. It's not just for youth athletes. This is uh, this is one of your, uh, this is a new stimulus for you then, I guess. Yeah. Just like something to just stimulate the brain and, and the learning process and to just build, build new connections. And yeah, I mean like the, even just like the balance part at first was extremely challenging. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm eight years old again, learning how to ride a bike, you know, Yeah, that was cool to just to simulate um, and to have a new challenge. Plus you get to like buy a new skateboard with like a cool design on it. Yeah. Yeah. I got like one with like Hawaiian flowers. Like, I don't know, like your typical, (laughs) like chick skateboard. Yeah. That's yeah. fun. <laughs> That's fun. Hobbies are fun. You get to tinker around with things, you know, different stuff. Yeah. That's fun. Well, cool. Well, look, we're a little bit over an hour, but I mean, I really enjoyed it. This was a lot of fun. Uh, is this similar to how you run your podcast? Yeah, just um, we kind of go off on tangents and just have deep discussions. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did a, a pretty good job today. My personality type is... ENFJ, which means that like, I'm very conscious of what other people are thinking. 
And um, I think tangents are fine, but on the podcast, I'm always like, are people going to like this tangent? Are people going to follow along? So I always get this like subconscious, this kind of like feeling. And that's just my, again, my personality type. So I try to keep it at like a good balance. No, I like it. And, you know, I think people, this is probably going to be very new for, for people who listen. So I hope it helps. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think, um, you know, obviously you get, we're supposed to get better at this over time. You know, your first podcast should not sound like your very last podcast as oh yeah, the same can be said for a lot of things in life. So, but uh, at the end, I enjoy doing it and I uh, really enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. It was nice to see you again. Yeah. You too. All right. I uh, hope you enjoyed it folks. We're going to end it here. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.